Are you looking for a way to support a loved one in recovery or show your own journey in a tangible way? Look no further than Simply Sober. Our recovery-based apparel company provides clothing, accessories, and activities designed to empower and support those on their journey to recovery. From sober-themed t-shirts, meaningful jewelry, and powerful recovery content, we have something for everyone. So let us help you express your recovery journey. Visit our website, simplysober.biz, today. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. We've got a brand new website for you to check out, addictsinthedark.com. Remember to give us a follow on Instagram and a like on TikTok as well. And if you want to be on the show, the website is where you want to go. It's caller 29 and their story about addiction. in the dark hey how's it going i'm good so you know how this is gonna go oh yeah and i think it's a super cool idea i'm really uh really glad to get a chance to share glad to have you on you'll have an hour at most just no names no exact locations okay yeah and other than that the floor is all yours awesome i appreciate it nick i appreciate you coming on so tell me your story about addiction Okay. I, um, man, I'm, I'm 20 years old and, uh, I feel like I didn't really know addiction or what it was or any sort of basis of like mental, emotional connections or chemistry or how people form attachments to things. Uh, my family has just never been anything of the sort. Like if I said I had an issue, you know, it was, oh, it's cause you're, 10 years old or it's because you're 13 or it's because you're 16, you know, but at a certain point I started to realize that something had to have been going on. You know, it's mental health is a, is a big thing. And, uh, my family never really, you know, believed in it, I guess. Um, until more recently, you know, I, I've, I've done some off the handle things and, you know, I feel like done everything in my power, uh, and still am to like branch them out and, and open them up and, make them realize there's more to the brain and, and the human being than they've, you know, previously been under the impression of. But I guess that was kind of my preface into saying that it started way younger than, you know, I could have imagined. Um, and I think my addiction really started with emotional attachments and, and situations and the feelings with anything that would make me feel outside of the ordinary, because uh, I didn't want to feel normal or like myself, because there just had to be something more. There has to be something more, you know, than what sobriety feels like for me. And so at a very young age, 
and I, and I've never talked to anyone about this. Um, so pardon me if, you know, I have trouble getting some things out. Uh, it's still, some of it's sort of sensitive to me, I guess. And so I'm just trying to, there's no expectation as to how it comes out, but you're doing great, dude. Gotcha. Awesome. I appreciate it, Nick. No problem. Um, so I think my first, uh, instance of addiction probably started when I was about, um, well, the one that I recognize at least and remember was probably when I was about 10. And the story of it's funny is when I was on my tablet, it was like the first technological device in the family. And I got my hands on it. And, uh, I was looking up free movies. I wanted to watch movies <laughs> without having to buy them. So I looked up like free movies, whatever, one, two, three. And it was like, came up with XXX free movies. And I clicked on it, not knowing, and boom, just flooded with pornography. And um, I turned it off immediately. And I felt kind of instantaneously traumatized. Like I knew that I would never be able to get rid of the images I saw and that it would be burned into my brain. And so after a while, I started to feel like, you know, sexual urges and, and what have you. Um, but it was for a certain type of demographic. Like initially I had been interested in, you know, heavier set women and it was actually called feederism. I found out. Um, and that was, that was a, a terrifying thing for me because I didn't know what I was fueling. You know, I, I was just feeding this sort of urge and it just started out with liking slightly fuller women. And it became this whole addiction that I had battled with forever. And it was just a fantasy. Um, and I hadn't come to terms with that for a very long time that that wouldn't be a real thing for me. It was just, purely fantasy and distracting myself from like true intimacy. Um, and so, sorry, before you continue this feeder fantasy, can you talk a little bit more about it and explain what it is? Uh, the whole idea was I wasn't necessarily turned on by larger women, but the idea of like having my skinny girlfriend, pack on some pounds because of me was like the whole idea of it. So I quickly learned that it was like a toxic thing that it was like not, it was the wrong kind of body positivity and whatever you want to call it. Like I thought I was like, yeah, you know, uh, body positivity, like all weights are okay and healthy and whatever. But I was just, it was just kind of, it didn't matter what my girlfriend wanted. Once I had had a steady one, it was me in full control of her weight, her eating habits, like her sex life, all of it was, you know, like at my disposal, like basically the woman in my life would have no control over herself and it would be by my word, what she would do with and for me. Um, so like I said, it just, it was bad, but I didn't know. Um, and I thought it was okay. Like it was a phase I'll grow out of it. Um, and then, I mean, probably eighth grade, this whole feeder fantasy, whatever took a back burner. And I started seeking other outside stimulation 
trying to find something else to comfort me and to make me feel like I wasn't wrong in my in my search for feeling. And so eighth grade, I made buddies uh, with this guy in math. And uh, I went over to his house all the time. He was pretty close. And his dad smoked a ton of weed uh, and he sold it and grew it and, you know, all the works. And so eighth grade, I, I smoked weed for my first time and I loved it. It made me feel better than I ever had. And it didn't feel wrong. Maybe it did, but only in the sense of like, people say this is bad, but to me, it's the best thing ever. So I, I started searching for and trying to smoke weed as much as I possibly could. And, uh, I want to say like freshman year, probably the jewel got real big, you know, like vaping. Um, and so my buddies, Manny comes into the bathroom and, uh, he's like, oh, I got this mango flavored jewel. I didn't know what it was. So I hit it and boom, nicotine addiction. I had vape pins and dab pins and, you know, I was just smoking whatever I could. Um, uh, I'm holding a jewel right now. <laughs> That's probably bad, bad product placement on this podcast or is it? But anyway, <laughs> you never know. Um, yeah, no. So I don't, I don't think, uh, I didn't think vaping was like a bad addiction. I never saw myself like, Oh no, you know, I gotta, I gotta quit hitting my views. This menthol pod's so bad for me. I, I never really gave a shit about it, but, um, that's one of the things I'm trying to put down now. Uh, it's kind of like the only thing I have left. Same. Um, I didn't know that these things were becoming addictions, uh, up until more recently. It, so it was porn first and then it was weed and vaping. And then it stopped becoming about the substances. I don't know if it was ever about the substance itself. It was just about feeling, you know, like changing what was because I hated it. Uh, if this was reality that I didn't want to be in it and I needed something else. And so probably sophomore year, I guess I started like just taking anything I can get my hands on. Um, I was the guy where my friends were like, Hey, we got this and this, but we don't know for sure you want to try it. It was like, fuck yeah, and I'd pop it. But I'll preface the pills um, with, in eighth grade, I actually broke my hip. I did a lot of martial arts, so I had to have surgery to like, get a screw put into my hip, and it's still in there to this day. I think it will be forever. But they gave me hydrocodone, and they gave me a big prescription, and... uh I'd only taken it once, I think. And it was like as soon as I got out of the hospital. And then I found it again my sophomore year. So I don't know, you know, expired hydrocodone, how that works. But I found it above the kitchen sink, like stowed away in the medicine cabinet. And uh, I just assumed my parents forgotten about it. And so I had snatched it. And, uh, man, I was taking... That was, it was a big ass bottle too. I don't know how much was in there, but I was taking like any, anything I could get my hands on. It didn't, it did not matter. Uh, but I knew to an extent, you know, like there's gotta be, there's gotta be a stopping point. You know, I can't take everything. I was like, I'll, I'll do most of it, but not all. And so I thought I was being smart by having like a no meth, no heroin 
and uh, everything else was fair game. And so, man, all of high school was, I don't, I don't remember half of it. I just know that I was knotted off and fucked up most of the time. And I remember it being um, like me and my buddies thought we were cool because it was like, have you ever seen the Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about when you brought up the expired hydrocodone. I was thinking about the expired quaaludes. Yeah. After 15 years in storage, the lemons had developed a delayed fuse. It took 90 minutes for these little fuckers to kick in, but once they did, pow. I mean, I had skipped the tingle phase and went straight to the drool phase. Expired hydrocodone, by the way, is less potent, but anyway. I was about to say, that's what my buddies always referred it to because, I mean, we were just taking it all. And uh, I didn't ever fully realize until I was about 18 and I got real heavy into psychedelics. So I'd had like my first real heavy, heavy trip. And it was probably about like six G's of mushrooms. And I had thought that I'd had like a spiritual awakening. And I just, at that point was obsessed with finding a meaning. I was like, okay, I've gone, I've gone through all this. I've, I've done any number of, substances none of it mattered until now and you know i feel like i've been waiting for something my whole life like i've always been on the edge of my seat as long as i can remember like something i don't know what but something is going to happen um and i felt it when i did dmt have you heard i was about to say with with the addiction i don't know if you know, people have mentioned it or haven't ever heard it mentioned in the context of addiction, but I do know it as the powerful hallucinogenic, if not the most powerful hallucinogenic around. Okay. Maybe not an addiction. I don't know about that. That would be kind of wild, but totally. I, I took a pretty heavy dose apparently of DMT. And I, I think your first dose is supposed to be something around like 20 to 30 milligrams. And I took about like 80 to 90 and I just felt like I found the meaning of life like I just you know it was, it was the pinnacle of my life so the words that I'm saying to you right now as you know the this person that I am talking to you Nick we're both on the phone right now in our respective places I had lived an infinite amount of lifetimes with interactions just like this one like I don't remember the details of them, but I lived, I can't express enough, like millions of different lives and felt like I got to the end of it. And it was like I was on this cosmic staircase and I had reached the top step, but there wasn't another, another step to reach and then I had just fallen. I had taken that last step and fallen all the way down back into my body and I was being sewn back into myself and like I said I don't remember a whole lot of it but I had just known that I had finally experienced emotion like real true feeling and it was the beginning of you know kind of my awakening and my realization of like who I am what I am what I'm here on earth for and why I need to take care of and or better myself. But it was really hard because I felt like I had experienced something so 
grandiose and life changing that there was no real reason to be on earth anymore. So I kind of went down a, you know, you wouldn't expect. You can channel your inner thinking with Melissa Armstrong coaching. Go to strongarm.ca for more. So this transformative experience you had with DMT, how did it affect your addiction recovery or did it affect your addiction recovery? Well, I, I had actually opened up to my dad about it. Um, and my, the, the biggest thing I think that encouraged me in my substance use was my family not noticing. Um, and they would always say things like, you know, they would mean we're here for you and we want to take care of you and we want to do things for you. But the next minute I was getting cold. I don't want to say politically incorrect terms or, or being appropriate, but yeah, it was just what I was called by my family. Um, my dad would be like, why are you going to school like that? You look like a faggot. Or, you know, I, I come home and I make a mistake and I get called a retard and just like berated. And it was just the confusion. It, it was just my mind as a kid being like, okay, he loves me enough to buy me McDonald's or get me ice cream, but I'm useless or I'm a moron. I'm a piece of shit. I, I don't understand. And so it was just kind of like just such a, a confusion there that I didn't understand. And so when they said that they were there for me and they cared and they loved me, that there was no way they didn't notice that I had basically been high for two years straight. But then, like I said, that led up to DMT and that really flipped the script for me. And I was just kind of like, well, okay, what now? I didn't know what to do. I had all this so-called profound knowledge and new experience, but what to do with it? Um, because I couldn't shout to the whole world like, hey, DMT will fix your life. DMT is amazing. It it helped me this and that, you know, whatever. But I couldn't. It wasn't realistic. Um, and so I was crushed. And I think that I just went back to my old ways for a little while. Um, I basically just went through a period of like existential nihilism where I was like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't mean shit. Uh, I could do whatever the fuck I want in this life and it won't matter. Thank you, DMT. <laughs> so it was amazing at first. And then I went through this this period of what I believe to be a, a sort of psychosis. And I immediately went back to smoking copious amounts of pot. And uh, I got into blow real heavy. A um, um, couple weeks down the road, I'm at a party. And uh, man, biggest, biggest block of blow I have ever seen in my life. Uh, on this counter in the bathroom and homeboy was so fucked up that I was like, Hey, I'll give you, I'll give you two blunts that I already rolled. If you let me do some lines. And he's like, Hey bro, go for it. Handed me the card. And I just went to town. The Coke was just so good. Um, <laughs> and uh, man, that night, all the, all the Coke I did, I just, I don't remember how I ended up calculating my heart rate, but it was going so fast and I was panicking and it was the most anxiety ridden and just nightmarish experience that I'd, I'd had on anything not psychedelic. And my girlfriend now just happened to be visiting for the week. It was, it was perfect timing that I 
happened to OD. So I had overdosed and she was, I want to say like half an hour away and she sped to come get me, took me to the ER. And they said that, you know, with your heart beating at the rate it was and for how long it was doing that, it should have given out at least, at least an hour ago. Um, and I know how all those stories go where it's like, if I didn't make it to the ER when I did, I would have died. But I mean, the doctors was like, Hey, you're, your heart definitely should have given out, bro. I don't know how the fuck you're still alive. But after that, then it just became mushrooms and pot. And uh, I only used it, you know, with intention. Like I sit down and I would roll a blunt. It would be because I wanted to explore myself, you know, like my introspective, my introspective means and, you know, spiritually open myself up and, and learn more about my traumas and heal myself and whatever it may be but i i stopped everything probably about a year ago i haven't kept count because i feel like i'll ruin it if i pay too much attention to it so i've been sober for about a year you know the occasional drink on the weekends with my girlfriend but i feel like i have to have something or else i'll i'll snap and I don't know what will happen, but it will not be good for me. But like my porn addiction just recently came to light with my girlfriend and I told her all about it. And I mean, she was in some tears, but uh, she was there for me. She knew like, Hey, I know you don't want this. I know you don't have control over this subconscious grasp this has on you. And I know you love me. And so we worked through that. and. Now, every time I get an urge for something like that, I realize that I don't want to throw away my girlfriend or the relationship that I have for some phone screen, you know, and uh, I haven't done anything hard for a long time. I haven't smoked any weed only because I have panic attacks now because I know I, I don't need it. There's, there's no reason for me to do any of this stuff. I feel like I've healed enough to a point I've, done enough drugs that I think that not only was it not supposed to be as long as a phase in my life that it was, but that I've learned everything I can from it. And I think that's the biggest thing is all of the, all of the trials and tribulations and bullshit I've ever gone through um, was all to teach me something. And that's my biggest new outlook is that there's no real good or bad experience. It's just all experience. It's up to me to go through it, process it and move on and to just better myself in the process. And, you know, there's no such thing as going back. It's, it's all forward progress, whether it looks or feels like it. So it's, uh, it takes a lot of courage to come on this podcast as a 20 year old and to be as introspective and articulate as you were. It's fair to say that Addiction has made you wise beyond your years, my friend. I appreciate you and the, and the fact that you say so. I feel um, timid sometimes because nobody wants to hear from some fucking 20-year-old druggie. So I appreciate the chance for, you know, you letting me talk it out. And, you know, I've never told anybody really about any any of that in that depth, at least, except for my except for my girlfriend right now. So I think that was really good for me. So I, I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, 
you listening. That phone call was a lot more than the dark valleys of porn addiction and the mind-bending landscapes of DMT. That phone call showed us the power of the human spirit to overcome obstacles and find opportunities for growth and self-discovery. His story is a testament to the bravery and resilience that lies within us all, reminding us that even the toughest challenges can lead to incredible personal transformation. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. Addicts in the Dark is brought to you in part by Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca. 